The content in this program is for informational purposes only. You should not construe any information or other material as investment, financial, tax, or other advice. The views expressed by the participants are solely their own. A participant may have taken or recommended any investment position discussed, but may close such position or alter its recommendation at any time without notice. Nothing contained in this program constitutes a solicitation, recommendation, endorsement, or offer to buy or sell any securities or other financial instruments in any jurisdiction. Please consult your own investment or financial advisor for advice related to all investment decisions. Don't forget to follow at Lead Lag Report on Twitter to join these conversations live. And check out the Lead Lag Report at www.leadlagreport.com. Use promo code PODCAST30 for two weeks free and 30% off to get access to award-winning research and anticipate stock market crashes, corrections, and bear markets. And now, on to our Lead Lag Live discussion, hosted by Michael Guyot. My name is Michael Gaiad, publisher of The Lead Lag Report. Joining me for the hour is the man that some of you may know as Trader Vic, Vic Sperandio. Vic, you've been around for a long, long time. Introduce yourself for those who are not familiar with who you are. How'd you get uh, involved in markets? Tell us about some of the highlights in your career and what are you doing now? Okay, well, I started in 1966, January. And in 68, I went to work for an options dealer, a put-and-call dealer, where I was a trader. And these are the old OTC options. CBOE started in 71. And in 71, I started my own options firm. We were the 27th dealer in the business. In the OTC business, we became the the biggest put-and-call dealer in the world in six months on a concept that I developed called reasonable firm markets because when you bought options, they were called workout. You, you never really got one until the CBOE started. Then you got, you know, if you want to buy an option, you could buy it at the price indicated. So in any respect, I became, I was the president and I ran the portfolio and I got into futures in the early seventies. And so I'm a derivatives trader. Basically I got to be very good at, at, the downside. And I was hired by uh, George Soros to run the quantum fund short position in 81 and was successful, gave back the money in 82 when the market started to go up and I became a bull. And then I ran Lee Koopman's money and Boone Pickens and many, many, you know, well-known players on a have gun will travel deal. You know, they hired me for a purpose purpose was done. I went on my my merry way. So but always been in business for myself since 71. Now, we, we actually sold out to Whedon, I should say, in, in, in 77. And I was a block trader for a while. That was part of the deal until they went out of business. Nothing to do with the traders. They overspent. But, but the point is the traders were great. So basically, uh, in the 90s, I basically developed algorithmic trading in commodities mainly. And basically, uh, I've been in that business since the 90s and developed many strategies that uh, sold three billion plus, maybe three of them. But that's basically where I am today. I do this with institutions. I don't do anything really retail. You talk about working with the likes of Soros and Cooperman and T. Boone Pickens. I'm just curious, any... um 
any similarities across them as as people kind of view them as these sort of legendary traders and investors? Well, they were yes, they were very tough. Uh, let's put it this way. Uh, this is a great story because I uh, I went to George's office and uh, he hired a guy from Oppenheimer who was a trader. We went out to lunch. We came back. He fired the guy. <laughs> he fired him, gave him his full annual pay, whatever the deal it was. And, you know, he basically didn't like what he started his positions out. I mean, you know, these are very intelligent, tough guys. And Soros probably has the IQ of 10 congressmen to put together. So he's very, very bright. I don't agree with his politics at all. We're opposites. But when when I was running the quantum fund short side, I mean, I spoke to him every day for about eight months, including Sundays. Brilliant guy. Uh, unusual politics these days, but he's he's a super smart guy. So it, it, you mentioned IQ and you mentioned toughness, and it's interesting, right? Because you would necessarily, I think, combine the two. Do you find that the real greats are more um, naturally intelligent or more on the sort of EQ emotional side? Because let's face it, markets are emotional, and toughness has to do with beating not just your emotion but others' emotions. No, these people are not emotional. They're very, very logical, reason-driven, and uh, highly intelligent. Most of these, the big ones like this that I've expounded on, and there are others, but toughness in this case meant if if you did something stupid or wrong, there was no, no mercy, no forgiveness. They would fire you on the spot. So that's what I mean by tough. You had to, you had to be disciplined, and whatever your deal was, you had to live by that deal. My deal with Soros, for example, was I had to be a hundred percent short my position at all times, or flat. But I couldn't have partial a position. You imagine the quantum fund. This is in the early eighties. Was pretty big, and basically, I lost five percent. Now that was in the eight hundreds. Then I was. Terminate. <laughs> so no, now I made money. I was lucky in those days. But the the point is, you know, they 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 live by very strict regimentation, like you know, an army general, so to speak. But yeah, I mean, you and I both know, being in the industry, obviously, you a lot longer than me. That you know, the real challenge is is the anxiety that comes from that which you cannot control. Right. So sure, you've got to be able to stick within your mandate, but and and you have a process, but you really can't control the result, but you're judged on that result. Yes. And like I say, if if he tells you you lose 5%, you're fired, he meant it. <laughs> you know, if it was 5.5, there's there was no mercy. So, you know, as I said, I was lucky. So I, I did win and he gave me a check when I, now the other deal was, was when I turned bullish, I was running the bad side, he had 12 bulls. Because he became a fund of funds in late 80s, 81, because he was down 33% that year. So instead of giving back the money, he basically took the management fee and paid guys like me the incentive fee if we made money. We didn't get any cash management fee. So the point was that these were very regimented guys. And I made them money, and I asked them for some long allocation. I said, George, give me anything. He wouldn't do it. <laughs> because he didn't need me for the long side. You see what I mean? So this is really nuts and bolts, two and two. 
there is he doesn't like you or dislike you. It's just business. Now, now I think we can also argue that back then it was perhaps easier to identify asymmetric opportunities. Markets were probably, you can argue, less efficient using sort of the traditional finance terms. I'm curious, do you think that if you were to do a, a thought experiment, if Soros were to start his career all over again today, would he be in the same place 20, 30, 40 years from now as he is now when he started before? Or have market dynamics changed so much that it's harder for the legends to become legends again? No, I, I believe he he would do the same thing. He, you know, basically, he was a currency trader, and he understood the economics of, of countries and how they work with currencies. So that was his main forte. And just as a, a quick synopsis, when I was working with, like I say, he spoke to me every day, and I was his hedge in this in the quantum fund. And you know, the quantum fund charges one in fifteen. He took the one, he gave the fifteen to the profits of the people he dished the money out to. The point is, is that in speaking to him one day, he he now in those days the future the futures didn't exist, so. I had stocks. I could short. So we agreed on a portfolio. These were the typical high tech stocks at the time, you know. And and what happened was that I was very impressed because he's a fundamental, like I say, currency trader. But on the technical side, when the markets would rally and run into a down sloping, underline that for your for your audience, moving it two hundred day moving average, he would know that that was the pl- place to enter shorts, see? So he goes short into moving averages when the prices even broached those, as long as the the moving average was down. Now, there was a study done by Indicated Digest. I'm a historian here. And that was proven by the Indicated Digest CEO, and I forget the name now, but you don't short above a moving average if it's sloping downward. Now, George knew that. He he was a technician as well, but that's not his history. And I, it would surprise me. So that's what I mean, that he was very smart in all respects. Just a quick story. Now, that's, that's, a, that's obviously a very sort of, um, let's call it basic rule. That's something actually my father had taught others when he was with Bob Farrell on his team in the mid-80s. And you know, is, it, is it fair to say that risk management is actually just as simple as that? or does it need more complex thinking? Especially, again, given that now you've got all these algos, now you've got all these well, different players. It, it's just knowing, see, somebody wrote a book and, you, you know, basically if you buy above the moving average, but they never designated if it's flat or it's just sloping downwards or sloping upwards. So few people know this. And by the way, I listen to podcasts all the time. And most pros, let's call them pros, I wouldn't put them in your category because they're basically podcasters and they don't know that. I mean, they'll say if it goes above the moving average, it's bullish, you know, because they read some book, but it didn't designate that if it's trending downwards, it's it's not a buy. It's a, it's a short in a bear market. My point is, is that there are all kinds of rules. What to get back to your question, Soros knew a great deal more about the nature of the markets than he was given credit for because he knew these subtleties. So you've written a number of books. We're going to touch on them. But one of the things I said quite often, maybe like two years ago, was that 
as I was seeing on social media, all these memes and things that people were saying about investing, I said multiple times that the level of uneducated speculation is astounding. And I said that all throughout 2021, coming out of the COVID crash. And you've got a book, Principles of Professional Speculation. Yes. Uh, So I want to relate the two concepts together. What makes for a professional speculator versus an amateur, uneducated speculator? And why is it important to distinguish between the two? We'll be back after a quick break. Hello, listeners. Michael Guyad here from Lead Lag Live. Are you ready to take a deep dive into market trends, risk management, and investment strategies? Then you need the Lead Lag Report. Our in-depth analysis helps you understand the financial markets like never before. And guess what? We're giving you a chance to experience it at a discounted rate. Visit theleadlag.report slash leadlaglive and get an exclusive 30% off on your subscription. Don't miss out. Level up your investment game with the Lead Lag Report. And now... Back to our discussion. Well, a, a professional takes now again in, in the markets I grew up in, which was sixty. Let's call it sixty-six to seventy-four. The Dow was down five years, up four years. So if you weren't proficient on the downside at that period, and that's how you learn, but you're out of business. So a professional, first of all, keeps his word. Okay. So you, you, in other words, you, money isn't the most important thing. It's your integrity. For example, my greatest claim to fame is not all these accolades I've been given, but I've never been sued by anybody for anything. And, you know, I've run retail money, institutional money. It's not that I've never lost. I've lost occasionally, never a lot, but, you know, nobody sued me enough. I guess I didn't anger people enough to sue me, but the people, the problem is that most people are not professional. They do things that in the long run, they'll lose a lot of money, like averaging down in Bitcoin. You know, there are people that do that strategy. It's worked recently, but, you know, it could put you out of business. And professionals, by definition, their main goal is not to make money, but it's to stay solvent. I mean, Jimmy Rogers and I, whenever we see each other, which is not often these days, our favorite byline is, are you still solvent? So, I mean, he was a pro too, of course, work with Soros. But the, the bottom line is you take your losses, you know what you're going to do. You don't really blow up things and you you try to make money all the time. now. It should be should be stressed just because very few people talk about it. Soros's strength, and few people would know this, but you know, people that work for him would know. He basically was a size position trader. So when he believed in something, he traded size, huge, and but he was quick to take a loss. I mean, you know, he he didn't hang around if he if he did wasn't right, and he had his rules. But he was he made his money not by being right, by being right occasionally with big size. That's a different dimension. Most of these people you hear today, you know, they take a you know a two percent, one percent position, they scale in, or they buy some a little bit of this or a little bit of that. See, that's just that's just playing a game. I mean, you're not really out 
to being a professional when you do that. You're just keeping the money because you're not losing a lot for the customer, but you're never going to make a lot. So, you know, it's the old line traders that I grew up with and knew, and, you know, they, they had methods of making huge amounts of money at the time or losing big amounts of money when they were wrong. But the point is they, they sized the things they believed in a lot, a great deal. I, I, I mean, I, I'm just going to put this out there. In December, I created one of the strategies that I do. They're very low vol. They basically are, you know, the margin on them is 3%. I mean, it, these are futures positions, but they're very robust and low vol. Well, I did 10 times leverage, and we kept it that way until June. And then in June, the Fed switched to doing 75 beeps, rate increases, and I took it off. So, I mean, I did lose some money in that trade, to be honest. But the point is, you're doing things to make a lot of money, but you're quick to get out of that position. And actually, this thing made money until June, and then it started to lose a little, of course, a little is multiplied by 10. So, so you had to be quick or you're going to be, you know, bankrupt. So in any respect, I think I answered the question. You touched on, let's, let's talk about this conviction point because I still think, you know, you need to, you need to have risk management within conviction, which is not easy to find the right balance on. You kind of alluded to the idea that if it's not working with conviction, you got to get out of it you know, pretty quickly but you and I both know that's easier said than done, right? I mean, things gap and sometimes you can't get out and it can be a losing high conviction trade. How do you think about risk management while having high conviction? I mean, presumably you're not necessarily going all in with leverage. There's got to be some ceiling there. Well, you trade by strict rules is the point. So if you buy something at 50 and let's say a stock and you put on one of these high leverage trades, if it trades 48 and a half, you're out. And you, if you start to fight that and, you know, change your mind, that's where you're, you're not a professional. That's what I meant by professional. You stay within your rules. And, uh, you know, I, I didn't mean to confuse people with making high amounts of money. I'm just giving you, George made his money not by consistency, but by being right occasionally, but big when he was, but when he, he traded big when he was right, I mean, in a big way, otherwise he cancel a position. And I do the same thing. People aren't really hardwired to think like that, right? I mean, I'm sure you've seen a lot of the same behavioral finance psychology studies, right? The, the, the brain is more hardwired for the illusion of consistency than the fat pitch for the home run, right? And we, we, most human beings would prefer hitting the doubles and the singles rather than getting the, uh, the home run. Do you think that, that that's sort of why the greats into being great. In other words, it's that they're focused on the magnitude of being right rather than just the frequency of being right. Well, the I think let's call it winning and losing rather than being right. Because a great trader, I mean, I'd made triple digits if I made money on 44% of my trades. So, you know, that's more like letting your profits run and cutting the losses short kind of thing. Because you're not even making 50% winners. The, the the point is that when you're you're trading here, you you you're trying to have a, a set of rules and a playbook by which you live. And the more you can live by that playbook, meaning you stick by your rules, 
the more successful you'll be. I've always been a guy that try to avoid catastrophic losses, right? So I've never had really catastrophic losses per se, because I live by these rules and, and the rules keep me in the game rather than, uh, you know, making up my mind along the way. Just like I said, with that stop trade where, I mean, I never put a stop order in, but I would live by those rules. And yes, it is difficult. And in one of my books, the first book, I talked about emotional discipline. And, you know, I, I tried to one time I did a, a trading concept where I would teach traders how to trade. And this was following along with Richard Dennis and the Turtles. And I basically thought I could be like a McDonald's franchise. You know, I'll teach people how to do this and I do a 50-50 deal with them. And, you know, I put up the capital and hopefully become a, a, a McDonald's franchise trading business. That didn't work. And the reason it didn't work, and I trained 39 traders in my own business and only five made money. Although I taught them the same things the same way. Why? Because of the emotional discipline. So really, the, the nature of the game is not how smart you are. It's how emotionally disciplined you are in what you're doing to prevent big losses. You know, your, your rules of, of stopping the losses, so, so to speak. Very few humans have the ability when it comes to money to be able to discipline themselves strictly. They, you know, use rationales to try to stay in the game. They don't want to take a loss. It's a knock against their ego or something like that. And those are the people that, you know, just don't, they have problems making a living at this business. Go to uh, my friend for a question. Uh, also long time in the industry. Go ahead. Okay. Well, first of all, I'm basically a fundamental macro thinker. So I have fundamental macro ideas on virtually all the markets. I've been doing this a long time. However, I believed, and this is the one thing that's missing from what you just asked me, so to speak, is there's an integration uh, that you have to perform to improve your results. And that integration is technicals integrating with fundamentals. So the two have to equal four, two and two is four in this case. So if I were advising you on how you can improve, because technicals help prevent losses. I don't say that they're perfect, but they help prevent losses. But they really especially work when you integrate them with fundamentals. So what I would do is find a very good technician and, you know, get his advice on if you're taking a fundamental trade. And, of course, I, I abide by that. Mario Labelli is very successful. He's a fundamental player. But, you know, the timing of getting in and getting out is critical. Now, in the last 14 years or so before last year, people really had an easy go of it on the upside. You just had to be a bull and, you know, basically the Fed bails you out. But the, the, the point is, those markets are probably gone. I say they're probably not going to reoccur the way they did from 09 to 21. The point is, if you're going to buy something, you'd want to get a technical a technician's perspective on is this a good time to be buying this or is it a bad time to be buying it? I mean, when we were in early 22, you know, markets were topping technically all over the place. 
So if somebody like the, this girl, Kathy Woods, you know, and she's a smart girl. She's a very uh, analytical fundamentalist. But, gee, she needed a technician because she was buying things that were in bear markets and going down. And a technician would have helped her immensely if she would abide by altering her procedures a little bit. And, you know, although I, I think she's a bright woman, I mean, Jesus is a portfolio manager. She just didn't win the battle at all. So I would only say try to integrate. And if you don't have to become a technician, you could hire people. There are a lot of them around, and some of them are better than others, obviously. The key is to find one that will help you enter trades and stay in those trades and then get you out. Technically, so to speak, you may decide fundamentally you don't want to get out, but that's the only way to improve it is to add those two together. Sure, absolutely. I can give you an example. And the key here is the rules. I'm not a big pattern guy, although I listen to them. I just don't go looking for them. If everything else fits, I'll observe the pattern and, you know, basically it'll help me make a decision. But it's not the key. The key is, you know, if you did you read any of my books? Okay. Well, the one of the concepts that I observed and I wrote in the first book, also in the second, is this concept called a 2B. Two, the number two, B like boy. And basically that, by the way, if you Google that, I mean, many people use that. I get letters all, all the time. They make money on that. And it's a money-making strategy. But basically, the why of it, which I'm going to answer for you to give you an example, a 2B is when something makes a, a, an important, underline that word, high or an important low and doesn't follow through and then comes back into the range of where it started. So the, the further apart you measure whatever you're measuring, whether it be stocks, bonds, commodities, doesn't matter the more likelihood it is that it's going to it's going to be not a whipsaw not a whipsaw now why does it work it works because when you're a futures trader as i am and or a stock trader you basically most people see these highs on charts or lows and i'm going to i'm going to get one up here which i'll uh, so to speak find one here as i'm talking to you so what people you you've got millions of eyes watching these charts around the world and they notice uh, the obvious the highs and the lows because they stick out the point is the the pros and you know i used to own a lot of seats so i had traders on the floor for me and what they would do is they would know these highs and lows and they can be shorter term but the longer term the more the, the more valid they are, and when you see those highs, you, you, what what's happening is the people around the world who are let's say short, they put their stop above the highs. So the professionals know this, so they run those stops. So what happens is you'll see often that a two, this concept that I call two B, they'll go above the high, and then fail. Now, what they're doing is taking out all those stops. So they're buying it up to hit the stop. The stops get executed. The market goes up. They short into that and it comes down. And if you look at charts 
And you, you, you can, as I say, many people around the world send me lots of letters on this because they make money doing it. This 2B concept is, is, is because pros know what the, what retail is looking at and they run those stops and take advantage of them. And you'll find that the two B's can be major highs <laughs> in the scope of things because everybody is who's in the know does this who are professional trader types. I'll try to find the stock I can give you an example of. Probably, you know, maybe it would work. It works on many, man. If you look through this, you'll see many of them. You look at charts. But the why is that you're taking advantage of what the public is doing by using technicals. See, that you're taking advantage of their what they're doing that you know. So that's how that kind of works. That's just one example. And by the way, everybody that's here, you know, feel free to check out Trader Vic's books on Amazon. Certainly among the, the best out there. Let's go to our question. Go ahead. Most of the five winners who made more than the the uh, 34 losers, <laughs> they were very quick to take losses. They traders now. I mean, this is not investors. These were traders. So the ones that, for example, one of the best was a Vietnam vet who had a hand grenade blow up near him and was harmed. Not critically, thank goodness. But And this guy had huge fear of being hurt. And he's translated that into losing. So this, this gentleman, although his intelligence level was average, and I had geniuses working for me too, but he was average. But he, he was very successful because he was afraid of anything that might harm him. So he was quick. So again, so now again, knowing what you are, if you're a trader, a speculator, which trades the intermediate trends or or an investor that basically trades the long-term trends is important. But I would only say that Michael's material, and I'm familiar with it, and I'm not just saying this, I told him this before we went on air, you, you know, you research history, you look at what history shows you, you diversify, and you look for non-correlated winners now they don't always work as, as and we were shown last year that things got correlated all of a sudden a rare year but the point is that diversification basically knowing what you are if you're an investor you're looking for long term and you have to have parameters around that if you're in that, if you're speculating and you're looking for intermediate moves for example, Jesse Livermore was a speculator, right? So he'd play intermediate swings. So, but key here is also in the when you do a trade, you say, okay, I'm going to buy uh, AMD at 75.72, and I'm going to sell it in advance of when you buy it. I'm going to sell it if it goes below the last previous low here. And this is actual because I got my screen in front of me. The low is um, 60.05. So that, in my world, that would be a big loss. But the point is, it shouldn't go, if the trend is up, if these semiconductors have made their lows or if the market has made its lows, I'm not making that prediction. I'm only saying, you know in advance where you're going to lose and you execute there. See, that's where that emotional discipline comes in that I was talking about before. Many people will make excuses and not do that. And they will 
lose money all the time because they really just have an ego. They don't want to take a loss. Losses are good if they're small, right? So the only thing I can tell you is really to understand what you're buying and selling, correlations, doing your research on on these historical changes between asset classes, and then keeping where you, when you buy something or sell something, knowing when you're going to get out in advance and executing it. You don't have to put the stop in. If it's a big position, you can't do that, but you should know where you're going to change your mind. I'd also add, I think, um, and I appreciate the kind words on that. Part of the emotional discipline is also having the rational possibility when you execute a strategy that the cycle just may not be in your favor, right? And since 2012, if you tried to do any kind of momentum outside of just large caps, it was like death by a thousand cuts. Small cap momentum doesn't want to stick. Emerging market momentum, horrible, right? That doesn't necessarily sort of invalidate your research or the approach because every approach has a time when it works and a time when it doesn't. Right, correct. Right, so I, I always like to stress that because it's, yeah, the cycle is always what determines success more than anything else. We'll be back after a quick break. Foodies unite with How You Dish. It's social media with a secret sauce. Food, the world's first network for food enthusiasts. How You Dish connects foodies across the world. Share kitchen tips and recipe hacks. Discover hidden gem food joints and street food. Find foodies like you. Connect, chat, and organize meetups. How You Dish makes it simple to connect through food anywhere in the world. So, how do you dish? Download How You Dish on the Apple App Store now. So let me mention something, Michael, that I wanted to tell you personally, knowing the situation you have, knowing a little bit about what you do. And I am a huge critic of government in general, but the Fed in this case. So let me give you some statistics that you could relate to, I'm sure, because the last year had nothing to do with markets. They had to do with Fed policy. And I'm going to prove that to you. I'm going to tell you why I say that. But the bottom line is that if you go back 96 years, back to 1926, which is Ibbotson, if you use Ibbotson Research, you know, their historical objective research firm, they give you the returns on asset classes. I think you know them, right? You you know them, don't you, Michael? You know Ibbotson? Yeah, 100%. Yeah, sorry, I was on mute. Okay, well, if you looked at, one of my concepts has a big exposure to five-year notes. I use futures, but same thing. And if you ask yourself, what was the worst year that the five-year notes, now this is 96 years, last year ended, it's 97 years. But take the 96 years before last year, what was the worst loss on T-notes in this period in history? Now, this encompasses world wars, minor wars, I don't know what Vietnam would be called, but all kinds of uh, the 87 crash, you name it, the inflation of the 70s. I mean, all kinds of issues. The worst loss on T-notes was 5.12%, 5.12%. I have a strategy where 40, 45% of my position is in these T-notes because they're stable. This is a stable built concept. Now, last year, 
was an unusual year on any fundamental thing you could point your finger at, except inflation was high, but nowhere near historical highs. It was there were about a half a dozen times where inflation was like last year. And last year they lost 10.4, double. Why? That's Fed policy. See, that wasn't that wasn't the markets. The, the Fed has a reason that to me is beyond what they say, in other words, to bring inflation down, to do what they've done because there never has been a Fed ever. Now, I've read the minutes when I first started in business in the mid-60s. I read the minutes back to 59, and I've read them all the way through. And I know, you know the mentality of the typical Fed FOMC membership. Never in the history has they have they ever talked in advance of a meeting of what they were going to do. This Fed talks the markets down. So my point is, how do you talk the markets down before you know the data? In other words, you get together, you have 12 men you know, that are voting. They go into this meeting. They usually, in history, they discussed the past data for the last seven weeks, six weeks. And they made a decision. Here, this Fed says, no, we're tightening. We don't care what the data is. So this is a very, this is change. This is a major change in my view. This is at, at best unethical. At worst, they're breaking the law of the Federal Reserve Act of 1913. They're not supposed to be speculating on what is what they want to happen by affecting the markets the way they do. I gave you that example, by the way, from, from 1969, it was a very similar year to last year in that all asset classes declined, except CTAs, if you're short, you know, CTAs did well. But most traditional asset classes, including gold, 69 gold went down, even though it didn't trade in the US, trade in London. So since 69 to 1994, that's the year it went down 5.14%. The Fed raised rates six times, a quarter of a point a clip. And that resulted in that T-note being down 5 and an eighth percent. The point is, it didn't go down anywhere in between us. So 69 to 94, T-notes never declined. Now, they didn't go up a lot, per se. But you see the difference? There's something that is really not right in the Federal Reserve Board when they make decisions before they know the facts. Because that's the whole point of meeting to decide what you want to do. So to know to talk it down before you meet, that this is a change that is, in my view, material historically. And that's what caused a lot of the problems of last year. I mean, wanting people to be poor was the goal. <laughs> you can give it a name like the re reverse wealth effect, but it wasn't legit. Now, I don't think you'll see a year like last year again for a long time. But And that's why anything can happen in the markets. That's why you have to have an out because they changed and therefore it affected many of the, the historically intelligent ways of analyzing the markets to make money because you're being prudent. The prudence go out the window. So I, I only say that to you because, again, noticing what happened to T-notes 
was really mind-blowing to somebody like me because I think the median loss, there were 12 losses in 96 years, was like 1.77. So to have a 10.4% loss, that it just doesn't happen. There was, there was no reason for it. I mean, it's not like the, you know, the OPEC went off the dollar and the dollar crashed back down to 70 and it took the bonds with it or something of that nature, you know, you to make up a reason. This was just the Fed talking the markets down because they have the power. So anyway, with that said, I hope that helps people understand that whatever happened to them last year, a lot of it had to do with policy and not necessarily because somebody made major mistakes. By the way, I sincerely, I appreciate you providing that context because I'll tell you, know, as I'm streaming this through Twitter, I mean, a lot of people on Twitter seem to you know, beat their chest about how they saw the bond market sell off, but nobody ever saw the magnitude. It's always about the sequence and path and then the magnitude within, you know, the two endpoints. And it, look, you and I both know as, as people that test strategies in any data set, you're going to have anomalies. You're going to have outliers. That doesn't mean that you have to necessarily crucify all of the prior backtesting because of one single data point. It's just that, unfortunately, even going back to what you were saying, you know, if you're down 5%, they fire you. I mean, I, I'm sure we can agree on this. Short-termism now has never been as, sh- as short as it as ever in history. So it, it becomes challenging to communicate the context of the here and now when you have narratives and you have a lot of overconfident people that don't understand history. Correct. I concur. And uh, certainly the Fed shouldn't be doing ethically what they're doing. They should have policy. They raise or lower rates. It's based on some data they receive that is important historically. And that's what they do. But they basically, uh, I mean, they've they've tightened. I mean, they, they, if I'm not mistaken, the LEI, the index of leading in the economic indicators, down 12 months in a row. And they're tightening rates and talking the markets down. See, that that's unheard of. <laughs> I mean, that's just unheard of. You can do your policy, but every time the market rallies, they would talk it down. Now, they haven't done that recently. They're coming up to this meeting, so they're in a dark spot here where they can't talk. But it just is, there's much more to this government group than has ever occurred before. So I'm just saying that you have to put that into the mix that, you know, what's happened is is not necessarily you being stupid. I don't talk about you now, Mike. I'm talking about people in general. But anyway, so, all right. Well, that's my... No, no, I appreciate that. You know, that's, so so I, let's let's go back to sort of just, you know, uh, about your own history. And because, again, you mentioned toughness. Do you, I'm curious, do you, do you miss the physicality that was the case with trading? I mean, nowadays, everyone's a tough guy on social media when it comes to some long or short, but... You know, when you're physically around a bunch of other stocky individuals who are also trading and, you know, trying to uh, compete with each other, it toughens you in ways that digitally is it's not even possible. Yes, correct. And I traded with a group of six pros that all made money all the time. And they were, you know, professional day trade. This was day trading. But yes, and I missed that. And I, all I can say is that, you know, when you go through stages in life, when you're younger, you could focus by looking at a screen and constantly analyzing what you're seeing. 
it gets very hard once you get over 60 or 65. It depends. Because it's hard to keep focused for eight hours on markets, and especially you're looking at several of them usually. It's a much harder, let's say, thing to do. When you're young, when I was in my 20s, got up at six in the morning, and, you know, had machines, I look at the currency markets. I mean, it was a, a much different deal. You could do this all day, like an Olympiad, uh, so to speak. But as you get older, you have to look at things a little differently. So that's why I'm now a more longer trend kind of uh, mentality, where I have these, I do what you do, so to speak, a little bit different, but do the same principles where you know, I'm managing asset class changes than I am day trading. I don't, I day trade once in a blue moon, but I still do it, but I I don't make a living doing it. You know, it's something I choose to do. You had mentioned at the start of the conversation that, you know, back then I think was with Soros, you said, you know, futures didn't exist. And we went from futures not existing to futures existing to zero DTE, zero days to expiration options. I'm just curious, given that, I mean, (laughs) You've been at this for a long time. Do you think that all this sort of democratization, whatever term you want to use, all these different vehicles, all these ways of speculating has made it harder or easier for people to make money? Because it seems to me that we've never been in a market environment where the temptation to do the wrong thing was so high. Well, answering it this way, when when the S&P first started, which was in, if I'm by memory, in 82, I was printing money. It was a a wonderful thing. I mean, I was just loving it. And it was so easy because you could, instead of having to short or buy 20, 30, 40 stocks, as I used to do, you could make one phone call direct to the floor and, you, you know, sell something on a down tick or buy it, in a, you know, just buy it. And it was a piece of cake. But however, what happens is, and this is where we are today, originally the professional brokerage houses, the Goldman's and Morgan Stanley's in the world at that time, would start to observe that this was a very profitable vehicle. So they'd come in and they'd use the futures for their own benefit, which is logical. And it got harder. And they had these things with buy programs. You've heard the term and you don't use them today too often. And the, they were set up to do a, a, a buy, and I don't want to get into too many details of this. There are different instances, but they would manipulate the markets if you want to look at it that way on a short-term basis, meaning an hour, near probably three to four o'clock. It would be the usual. Now, what happened is the governments learned this trick too, and they are some of the biggest players in the futures market, and they manipulate the market too. So the markets are much harder now than they were when they originated all these vehicles that gave people more choices because they take advantage of that and they basically do what they want to do. So you're dealing with a very difficult game short term because the the Fed, who has a futures account at the CMA, and they basically have a discounted, they can buy many things that are are cheaper than they would charge you and I. And, you know, the if you if you take a S&P future, for example, which they deal in a lot, they can move the markets up by buying those futures. And then the day of expiration, the following day, they settle for cash. Now, you see, 
uh, traders can't do that with stocks because if you traded with stocks, you have to sell those stocks. But here, imagine buying billions of dollars worth of stocks through futures, and then they just settle for cash at the at the opening. So they really could manipulate greatly, and they use that for sure. And this came out after the '87 crash. They started to learn how to, you know, manipulate the markets. So it's much harder today to win because there are more players that are sophisticated that are manipulating the markets because of their power than it was in my day. I think that's a good place to end this Twitter space. Again, everybody here, appreciate those that came up, asked questions, everybody that keeps uh, showing up to these conversations. This will be podcasts under that Lead Lag Live name. Please check that out and please make sure you follow Victor Sperendio here on Twitter. Uh, He's not on as much, but hopefully will be. And obviously check out his books on Amazon as well. Thank you, Vic. Really do appreciate it. Your uh, your wealth of knowledge and experience. It's good. I'm glad that people got to hear you here. Well, great, Michael. And I appreciate your professionalism whenever you speak. The content in this program is for informational purposes only. You should not construe any information or other material as investment, financial, tax, or other advice. The views expressed by the participants are solely their own. A participant may have taken or recommended any investment position discussed, but may close such position or alter its recommendation at any time without notice. Nothing contained in this program constitutes a solicitation, recommendation, endorsement, or offer to buy or sell any securities or other financial instruments in any jurisdiction. Please consult your own investment or financial advisor for advice related to all investment decisions. Don't forget to follow at Leadlag Report on X, Instagram, Threads, and YouTube, and check out the Leadlag Report at www.leadlagreport.com. Use promo code PODCAST30 for two weeks free and 30% off to get access to award-winning research and anticipate stock market crashes, corrections, and bear markets.